thanks on behalf of the committee to our nominees for taking the time to meet with us today. Today, we will consider the nominations of five highly qualified individuals for a diverse array of positions that impact U.S. national interests in global economic growth and development and the advancement of human rights, democracy, and religious freedom. First, we will consider Mr. Mark Stanley, the nominee to be ambassador to Argentine Republic. Mr. Stanley is an established leader in the legal field and has served in leadership positions in numerous local and national charitable and civic organizations throughout his career. Our second nominee is Mr. Rashad Hussein to be ambassador at large for international religious freedom. Mr. Hussein previously served as U.S. Special Envoy to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which included meeting regularly with heads of state and numerous other roles in government. And endorsed by dozens of Christian, Jewish, and Muslim leaders for this position, advancing <coughs> freedom around the world. And I'd like to enter into the record two letters, one from Christian and Jewish leaders and one from the International Religious Freedom Roundtable in support of Mr. Hussein's nomination. Is there any objection? Hearing none, those are entered into the record. We'll also consider Ms. Chantal Wong to be the U.S. Director of the Asian Development Bank, a position that comes with the rank of ambassador. Ms. Wong has deep experience in government and development finance and previously served as the acting U.S. Executive Director of the Asian Development Bank. In her ample free time, Ms. Wong, which I'm sure is very scarce, chronicled the annual Congressional Civil Rights Pilgrimages in Alabama with the late Congressman John Lewis, during which I had the opportunity to meet her. So welcome, welcome to see you in a whole different role today. For the position of U.S. Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction Development, we will consider Dr. Adriana Deborah Kugler. Dr. Kugler is a tenured professor of public policy and economics at Georgetown University. She has a distinguished list of honors and publications and deep experience in economics, including having been economist at the U.S. Department of Labor. And finally, for the position of Assistant Secretary of State for Economic and Business Affairs, we have Mr. Raman uh, Tol Louie as nominee. Mr. Uh, uh, Tol Louie is professor of the practice for international finance at Stanford University. He has decades of experience in finance and investment. He has served as the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for International Finance. Now dial it down a little bit. I'll just remind everyone, if you are not speaking, please mute your mic so we don't get the opportunity to hear your side conversations. Uh, thank you all. Uh, just over a month ago, the chairman of this committee, Senator Bob Menendez, took to the Senate floor to highlight the obstruction that has prevented the swift confirmation of nearly 100 nominations for the State Department and for USAID including numerous career foreign service officers. These nominees constituted individuals who would be responsible for critical national security roles. Thanks to the works, the work of members of this committee, we have made progress and just last week referred out 33 nominees to the full Senate. We are very appreciative of the momentum and movement that the committee has taken in advancing nominees for all of our critical national security positions. But we still have 54 nominees pending on the Senate floor and 22 nominees pending before Senate Foreign Relations Committee and future nominees to come. I'm sure many of my colleagues share my hope that this spirit of comedy on the committee will continue with future slates of nominees. With that, I'll turn to Senator Haggerty for some opening remarks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, and I wanna thank all the nominees for appearing before our committee today. Uh, I wanna to congratulate you and thank you for your willingness to serve our great nation. 
Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from each of you. Uh, today, we consider five nominees for important positions. I'd like to start with the nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for Economic and Business Affairs. This position links America's diplomatic power and America's economic might. It helps to advance American economic opportunities for U.S. businesses overseas, helps to attract foreign investment in the United States, and to employ economic pressure against our adversaries. In my prior role as Ambassador to Japan, I worked very closely with the previous incumbent on a variety of strategic initiatives like our Blue Dot Network. At a time when economic security and national security have become more intertwined than ever, we need an assistant secretary who will lead engagement in economic sectors of strategic significance to the United States. Shoring up critical supply chains, cooperating with partners on advanced technologies, countering investments by malign actors in strategic infrastructure, and pursuing an all of the above energy strategy. I'd like to turn to the nominee to be U.S. Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. As the world's largest development bank, the IBRD provides financial products and policy advice to help countries reduce poverty and extend the benefits of growth throughout the world. At a time when our strategic adversaries are attempting to rewrite international rules and norms, it will be critical for the U.S. Executive Director of the IBRD to advance policies and values that represent the free world. I'd like to turn now to the nominee to be the United States Director of the Asian Development Bank. This is a critical moment for the ADB to play a leading role in ensuring that economic, financial, and infrastructure needs of the Indo-Pacific reflect the values and policies of the United States, as well as, as those of our allies and our partners in the region. We must leverage the full scope of U.S. economic tools to promote concrete foreign policy goals and expand collaboration with key allies and partners. Specifically, we must use these tools to counter the growth of state-directed economic engagement by China, which simultaneously distorts markets, pushes out American and allied companies, and undermines U.S. national security. Next, I'd like to turn to the nomination to be Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom. This is a critical position, perhaps today more than ever, because religious freedom is under attack across the globe. From Christians in Iran and in the Middle East, the Uyghur Muslims in China. Today, the United States needs a strong ambassador who will work tirelessly to sustain America's leadership in international religious freedom. And last, but certainly not least, I'd like to focus on the nomination to be U.S. ambassador to Argentina. Argentina is an important partner in terms of diplomacy, trade and economics, counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism, space, science, and technology. I look forward to hearing from the nominee about how we can strengthen the U.S. partnership with Argentina while also countering China's malign influence in the country and throughout Latin America. With that, I'd like to turn it back to Chairman Murphy. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Senator. And so now we're going to proceed with the testimony and uh, we're going to do something a little unusual in that when Senator Kane arrives, he's going to give an introduction after the testimony has been presented by Mr. Mark Stanley, and also after testimony has been done by Mr. Rashad Hussein. Uh, when we have completed those two uh, testimonies, uh, we will go to uh, Ms. Chanto, and uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth is here to introduce her, and then Chris Van Hollen, Senator Chris Van Hollen, Maryland, will introduce Dr. Adriana Kugler. So, Mr. Mark Stanley, 
I'm not going to give an extended introduction now. Senator Kane will make remarks uh, uh, later to add to the, uh, the the few points that I made earlier, and we're going to turn directly to your testimony. You have the floor. Thank you, uh, Chairman Merkley and Ranking Member Haggerty. Um, I thank you for the opportunity to appear before you as President Biden's nominee to serve as ambassador to the Argentine Republic. I'm deeply grateful that President Biden and Secretary Blinken have asked me to serve. And I do want to thank Senator Kane in advance for his leadership, his friendship, and what I hope will be a kind introduction. I look forward to working with him as chairman of the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee. Serving in this role will truly be the honor of a lifetime and another humbling chapter in a family story that is unique to the American promise. A story that finds its roots in small villages in Belarus, Ukraine, and Poland. My father's family first made their way to Brooklyn, New York with little to their name. My mother's father fled pogroms in the early 1900s and landed in London before my mother eventually crossed the Atlantic at age 19 to reach America's shores as well. My parents met at a Jewish singles dance on Long Island, and after marrying and having two sons, they moved to Dallas, built a business, and planted the seeds of a fruitful life. My younger brother and I were born in Dallas, first-generation Texans. Although my father and two brothers have passed, and I miss them dearly, I am grateful that my 92-year-old mother, Rini, and my brother, David, are still with us in Dallas. And Texas is where I met my extraordinary wife of 38 years, the love of my life, Wendy Hillebrand. And together, we've been blessed every day by three incredible kids, Daryl, Paul, and Mikey, and their partners, Marshall, Nikki, and Jesse, and now one perfect granddaughter, Jed August Soslin. I want to thank my family and my friends for their love and for their support. Throughout my life, Public service, the pursuit of justice, the desire to give back and repair the world, what in Judaism we call tikkun olam, have always been a central part of my identity. As a young intern and staffer on Capitol Hill, as a lawyer, as a volunteer, as an activist in everything from the fight to rescue Soviet Jewry, to the cause of a safer state of Israel, to leadership roles in national and local nonprofits, and serving in state and federal government. Now, if confirmed, I have the chance to continue forging that path on behalf of our nation. And I do not see this post as simply one of ceremony. Argentina, Latin America's second largest country, is a critical partner in our hemisphere. And as the United States ambassador, I intend to do my part to advance matters of mutual interest rooted in our mutual values. And I know I'll do so in a truly beautiful country a place where I've loved meeting the people and exploring, walking the streets of Buenos Aires, hiking in Barilochi, and getting drenched at Iguazu. I know I will be strengthened by the outstanding staff at our embassy, the distinguished members of the Foreign Service and local Argentine staff who perform the quiet but vital work of diplomacy every day. And I will come to this position with clear priorities in mind. These priorities are described in my formal statement, which was submitted to the committee, but limited to five minutes, I'll highlight just a few goals and be happy to go into more details in response to your questions. First, COVID-19. Argentina has started to turn the corner on COVID-19 infections, and the United States has played a great role. Ending the pandemic globally will benefit the United States, Argentina, and the entire world. 
And if confirmed, I will continue to explore all avenues to assist Argentina in this global fight. The economy. Sadly, Argentina is experiencing significant economic challenges, including its huge IMF debt and a prolonged recession. If confirmed, I will work to support Argentina's efforts to address those challenges. Trade. Two-way trade has been shrinking, and some U.S. companies are leaving the field due to regulatory barriers. If confirmed, I will keep engaging the Argentine government to address these challenges as we explore opportunities to expand U.S. trade and investment. Human rights. Argentina has not yet joined the United States and others in pressing hard enough for the protection of human rights and meaningful reforms in countries like Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And if confirmed, I plan to engage with Argentine leadership at all levels to seek ways to achieve our mutual goal of a hemisphere that honors our highest ideals. Finally, as ambassador, I'll make it clear that America is truly back, that our presence is a positive one, that we're interested in deepening our people-to-people -people ties. I'm committed to traveling to all 23 provinces to promote, our, to promote our businesses and promote our culture, and to remind our Argentine friends of everything that we have in common. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Stanley. And we're going to uh, adjust plans on the fly here as a courtesy to our fellow senators' schedules. And so we're going to have uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth introduce uh, Ms. Chantel Wong, and then have uh, Senator Chris Van Hollen introduce Dr. Adriana Kugler. And, um, and then I think uh, if uh, Senator Kane has arrived, we'll have him do his two introductions before we continue with the uh, testimony. So let me turn it over to you, Senator Duckworth. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's such an honor to get to be here today. And thank you to Ms. Wong um, for giving me the honor of introducing you. As a small child, she was only six years old when she separated from her parents in the Great Leap Forward. Chantel Wong knows what it's like to be hungry and homeless. And she has tragically experienced realities of grinding poverty. As I think you will see for yourselves today on a very human level, Ms. Wong possesses a unique compassion for and insight into the plights of hundreds of millions of people who need the kind of help that only large institutions without partnership and support can provide. You have here today a deeply good and warm-hearted person who lived in China, Hong Kong, Okinawa, and Guam until she was 21. She's also one of the best qualified nominees ever to sit before this committee as a presidential nominee to be our country's executive director of the Asian Development Bank. It is my deep pleasure to introduce her to you. I can honestly say that I've known about Chantel before she knew about me. She is truly an icon in the Asian American community. And I've always been grateful for her groundbreaking leadership and vision. It is because of pioneers like Chantel that many of us had such spectacular opportunities in public service. We first met in person at an alumna event at the University of Hawaii, where we both earned our undergraduate degrees. Chantel worked in various agencies over her 28 years public sector career, uh, a career that I could only aspire to when I was a student at the University of Hawaii. She has, her positions have included being at NASA, EPA, Interior, and the Office of Management and Budget. During the financial crisis of 2008 to 2009, she at Treasury helped to develop the framework for the financial instruments for the Troubled Asset Relief Program. She personally 
led the successful transformation of the federal budgeting process and even created a software tool that was used at over a dozen agencies. For that work, Chantal received the 2008 Presidential Award for Management Excellence during the George W. Bush administration. Chantel is the founding chair of the Conference on Asian Pacific American Leadership, now in its 32nd year. PayPal is dedicated to attracting young professionals to careers in public service and has provided opportunities for over 600 young AANHPIs. She's also a member of the Advisory Board of Veterans for Global Leadership, which creates leadership opportunities for veterans going into careers of diplomacy, security, and development. Chantel joined the staff of the Asian Development Bank in Manila in 1999 as an environmental specialist to ensure that the bank's assessments complied with their environmental and social policies. She also led development and publication of ADB's first Asian Environmental Outlook in 2001. She was subsequently appointed by President Bill Clinton to the Board of Directors at the ADB, where she represented the United States as the alternate executive director and provided oversight of the bank's entire operations. Consequently, she has intimate familiarity with the bank's mission, culture, and impact. Chantel speaks fluent Mandarin, Shanghainese, and Cantonese, and some Japanese. Her so maybe she can speak with you, uh, uh, the ranking member, um, Senator Haggerty. Um, her ethnic heritage, decades of public service, technological leadership, and executive level program management experience are exquisite preparation for this challenge of a lifetime. Her years of experience and expertise in international development, finance, the environment, and technology makes her incalculably qualified for this role. She's a parent, a Catholic, a fellow Asian American, an artist. She was John Lewis's, it's already been mentioned, she's John Lewis's personal photographer during his annual civil rights pilgrimages to Alabama. Um, as you said, Mr. Chairman, that's where you first met her, and a member of the LGBTQ community. She's also a public servant, and I fully support Chantel Wong's nomination. Thank you. Thank you so much, Senator Duckworth, for that introduction. We are hoping, Ms. Chanto Wong, that uh, when you testify, you'll testify in English. Uh, <laughs> quite a range of languages that uh, you have you have mastered. And now, Senator Chris Van Hollen will introduce Dr. Adriana Kugler. Uh, thank you, uh, Chairman Merkley and Ranking Member Haggerty, and to my colleagues on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I'm I'm very honored to introduce to you. Uh, President Biden's nominee to be the next United States Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, uh, Dr. Adriana Deborah Kugler. Uh, over the course of her distinguished career, uh, Dr. Kugler has dedicated herself to making the American dream more real for more people, a mission inspired by her own story as the daughter of two Colombian immigrants. She brings the experience, the integrity, and judgment and character required in the United States Chief Representative on the board of the World Bank Group. After earning her BA in economics and political science from McGill University and her PhD from the University of California at Berkeley, Dr. Kugler quickly ascended to the heights of economics research and scholarship, earning posts at top tier institutions and the World Bank, among other affiliations. Her vast body of research has confronted challenges of labor market inequities, unemployment issues, trade, immigration, health care, and more. And she has held the title of full professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University since 2010. 
But beyond her many titles, Dr. Kugler has paired her academic credentials with hands-on experience in public policy arena to help change people's lives. From 2011 to 2013, she made history as the first Latina to hold the post of Chief Economist of the United States Department of Labor. And in that role, she worked across 15 departments and agencies to tackle issues of unemployment, workforce investment, social security, and more. Uh, I've had the privilege of working with Dr. Kugler uh, when she was serving at the Department of Labor and I was serving in the House of Representatives. And I can testify both to her public policy expertise as well and importantly as her willingness to consult with and work with Congress as a full government uh, partner. On a personal note, I'm very glad that Dr. Kugler is not only a resident of my great state of Maryland, uh, where she now lives with her husband and two children, but is also a graduate of Maryland Public Schools and was a Capitol Hill intern to Senator Mikulski. Her longstanding dedication to fighting for working people, supporting business growth and breaking cycles of poverty makes our state proud to call her one of our own. And she is an exceptional candidate to represent the United States at the World Bank, where she will work with our international and other partners to unlock economic opportunity in developing countries so we can drive growth not only abroad but here at home uh, for workers and businesses. Uh, to my fellow members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, for these reasons and many more, I urge you to support the President's nomination as the next United States Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, Dr. Adriana Kugler. Uh, I urge everybody to support her for this position. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, Senator Kane is still not with us, according to his uh, uh, staff, so we will still hold the other introductions. And now we'll be turning to the testimony of Mr. Rashad Hussein of Virginia to be ambassador at large for international religious freedom. Well, thank you so much. Good morning, Chairman Merkley, Ranking Member Haggerty, and members of the committee. And I want to thank Senator Kane for his introduction. It is an honor to appear before you as the president's nominee for ambassador at large for international religious freedom. I'm grateful to the president and to Secretary Blinken for placing their trust in me to pursue this work on behalf of the American people. I would also like to thank my family, my parents, my sister Lubna, my brother Saad, my wife Sra, and our children, Suleiman, Safiya, Samaya, and our youngest, Safura, who turns 26 days old today. I am blessed to have your endless advice, support, and patience. Religious freedom is enshrined in our First Amendment and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It is a core American value and a human right. I am humbled to be charged with the sacred calling to protect the freedom of religion for people all over the world. My family came to the United States from India, where my father was raised in a village with no electricity. I was born in Wyoming, where my father worked in the mining industry, and I grew up in Texas. My mother, who is a physician, always encouraged me to use my life to serve others. I've spent nearly 15 years as a public servant, working in all three branches of government under Democratic and Republican administrations, upholding our Constitution, including as an attorney and as a diplomat. Collaborating with civil society from across the political spectrum to protect international religious freedom and alleviate human suffering has been some of the most meaningful and rewarding work of my life. 
During my time at the State Department, I worked in close partnership with civil society leaders on the Marrakesh Declaration, a landmark initiative on the protection of Christians and other religious minorities in Muslim-majority countries. As a part of our opposition to blasphemy laws and the criminalization of free speech, I led a process to end the annual passage of the UN resolution that harmed religious minorities around the world. And along with our special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, I traveled twice to the Holocaust sites with imams from the United States and many other countries to address anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. My work protecting human rights has taken me around the globe where I have had met, where I've met with civil society leaders, heads of state and other senior government officials in countries such as Central African Republic, Egypt, Pakistan, India, Turkey, Indonesia, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Nigeria, and China, which continues its oppression of religious communities, including the ongoing genocide of the Uyghurs. And I saw firsthand the trauma of the Rohingya living in the refugee camps in Cox's Bazar and heard stories of the horrendous acts of violence and mass atrocities they endured. Respected members of this committee, I was on Capitol Hill on September 11, 2001, as a staff member of the House Judiciary Committee. Since that day, I have been determined to do everything I can to protect our country and our national security interests. While at the Justice Department and State, I worked on the prosecution of terrorism and national security cases and other counterterrorism efforts, including countering terrorist propaganda often used to target religious minorities. As a Muslim American, I have seen the impact of bigotry and guilt by association tactics used against minority communities, including the message it sends and the danger it poses to young people. Congress has stood at the forefront of the work of protecting religious freedom since the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998 was passed on an overwhelming bipartisan basis. I am honored by the support of civil society and faith organizations from all across the political and religious spectrum, and I look forward to our continued partnership. In an era of vigorous partisan debates, Americans continue to be largely of one mind regarding the importance of defending international religious freedom. If confirmed, I will, I will work closely with the members of this committee and your staffs to extend this right to all. I will also leverage my existing relationships with Muslim-majority countries to protect the rights of religious minorities there. I will redouble efforts to broaden the coalition to hold China accountable for its horrific crimes against the Uyghurs and its repression of other ethnic and religious minorities. I will look to build on the impressive work of Ambassador Sam Brownback, who expanded partnerships through the International Religious Freedom Ministerial and the International Religious Freedom Alliance, and the groundbreaking efforts of Ambassador David Saperstein, who institutionalized relationships with USERF and civil society organizations. Tomorrow, the United States commemorates International Religious Freedom Day. Our country was founded on the conviction that everyone should be free to believe what they choose. Our own experience, our own example, is what compels us to advocate for the rights of the marginalized, the vulnerable, the oppressed, and the underrepresented peoples of the world. If confirmed with the support of the American people, I intend to carry out the United States' abiding commitments to championing international religious freedom for everyone, everywhere. Thank you for your consideration. Mr. Hussein, thank you very much for your testimony. And now we're going to turn to Ms. Chantel Wong. Welcome. 
and I believe you may still be muted. Good morning, Chairman, Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee. I'm deeply honored to have been nominated by President Biden to be the United States Executive Director to the Asian Development Bank. I'm humbled by this privilege. I would like to start by thanking some important people in my life for their support. My mother, who's watching these proceedings with great pride from her San Francisco apartment. My daughter, Sarah, my sister, Connie, as well as my dearest friend, Peter, and his wife, Claudia Levin. I would also like to recognize my mentor for 30 plus years, the iconic Alice Rivlin, who we lost two years ago. My history has shaped me and instilled in me the values and passions that make me who I am. As mentioned, I was born in communist China. When I was six years old, in the middle of the tragedy of Great Leap Forward and a tremendous personal risk, my parents arranged to have me smuggle along with my grandmother into Hong Kong in the bottom of a boat. I can still smell the food in the galley that I wasn't allowed to eat on that journey. That powerful and poignant memory is still with me today. During the Cultural Revolution, my father was sentenced to hard labor and my mother was a barefoot doctor in the countryside. That they even survived is a miracle and an experience too painful for them to recount. After I fled communist China, I didn't and hardly, I didn't see and hardly communicated with my parents for 21 years and until I could get them out. I was raised mostly by Catholic nuns who imprinted their faith and compassion on me. I can never repay my parents' sacrifice or the church's grace, but I have tried to pay forward, living my life with the values that matter to me. I came to Washington in 1989 after receiving a master's from Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and before that, a master's degree in environmental engineering from the University of California, Berkeley, with a focus on wastewater management and a bachelor's in civil and structural engineering from the University of Hawaii. Ever since then, the consistent theme of my career has been dedicated to public service, environmental protection, and sustainable development. I know the Asian Development Bank well, having previously worked there first uh, as a subject matter expert in Manila in 1999, focused on ensuring that the bank's environmental assessments comply with their environmental and social safeguard policies. I led, as mentioned, uh, the development and publication of the bank's first Asian environment outlook in 2001, and then was appointed by President Bill Clinton as the alternate executive director. I've had the extraordinary privilege of being appointed by President Obama to serve as vice president for administration and finance and the chief financial officer at the Millennium Challenge Corporation from 2011 to 2014. I believe that if confirmed, this foundation will prepare me well to be the executive director of, to the largest regional multilateral development bank serving Asia and the Pacific. Over five decades of its operations, the bank has contributed to a dramatic reduction in poverty from 1.5 billion people in 1990 to 263 million in 2015 in its developing member countries. The COVID-19 pandemic has presented challenges, but the bank has moved swiftly to expand pandemic support and boost financial commitments. While I applaud the bank's launch of the strategy 2030, if confirmed, I will work to focus the bank's resources on sectors, uh, especially quality infrastructure, 
and countries where it can be most impactful, assure financial sustainability, and maintain world-class systems for governance, human resources, accountability, and oversight. Increase competition in the region from financiers with less transparency and weaker standards underscores one of the challenges the bank must address. In many ways, the United States have been an irreplaceable partner in helping Asia lift so many people out of poverty and disease. American values of democracy, respect for human rights, and private, private enterprise remain the only viable path for sustainable, inclusive development and poverty reduction. Now we have an opportunity to re-engage with Asia and the Pacific to promote the president's infrastructure, public health, and environmental policies. With working with members of this committee, we can have a permanent and constructive impact on billions of lives through presence, participation, and patience. Again, I am so grateful to you all for your consideration of this appointment. I would be delighted to answer your questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. We so much appreciate your, your diverse experience and uh, your expertise that you bring to bear and testimony today. Thank you. And now we'll turn to Dr. Adriana Deborah Kugler of Maryland. Good morning, Chairman Merkley, Ranking Member Hagerty, and distinguished members of the committee. And thank you, Senator Van Hollen, for your very generous introduction. It is truly a privilege to have been nominated by President Biden to represent the United States as Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. I am honored for the opportunity to appear before you today. I would like to begin by thanking my husband of 27 years, Ignacio Danoso, and our two outstanding children, Danny, who is a second year student at the University of Pennsylvania, and Miri, a sophomore at Walt Whitman High School in Maryland. I am also tremendously grateful to my parents, Bernardo and Nellie Kugler, who have dedicated their lives to working on international development. I want to thank my family for their unwavering encouragement, support, and devotion throughout the years. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, as you know, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development was created in 1944 and was charged with channeling long-term development finance to help Europe and other countries to restore stability in the world. As the granddaughter of a family who fled Europe in 1939 to escape the Holocaust, sadly leaving behind relatives who died in concentration camps, I am grateful that the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development was created to rebuild the world after the atrocities and destruction caused by World War II. Since its formation, the role of the World Bank has expanded from being a lending bank, investing in physical and human capital, to also becoming a knowledge bank that shares and promotes best practices and development policies around the world. At present, the role of the World Bank and its leadership in multilateral institutions is as important as ever. Some of the most critical issues we face today, including the recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, climate change, terrorism, and a drastic rise in poverty, are truly global issues that require engagement with our allies around the world. If confirmed, 
I look forward to using my unique experience and skills in economic development, university administration, and government to help advance the goals of the U.S. in growing economic prosperity and creating greater stability around the world. For over two decades, I have been doing research and analysis of economic development as a professor of public policy and economics, now at Georgetown University and previously in universities in Texas and Europe. In my work, I have studied how labor markets and social policies across the world can improve the lives of working people, help businesses create jobs, and help the least fortunate obtain education and training to get out of poverty and become self-sufficient. In addition, an important part of my work focuses on cost-benefit analysis, which inform how to best spend taxpayers' money in programs with the highest return. Over the years, I have worked on evaluating projects on the ground. And thus, I also understand the real problems of implementation that need to be overcome when policy is put into practice. I firmly believe we're able to best advance US goals if development assistance is guided by high standards of accountability. My work in university administration as vice provost of Georgetown University, overseeing and developing policies for all faculty gave me practical experience implementing good management practices. This experience will be useful for the U.S. Executive Director at the World Bank, particularly in advocating for accountability and transparency at this institution at the highest levels. My experience in government as Chief Economist at the U.S. Department of Labor helped me to understand the importance of breaking silos and working across agencies building coalitions and reaching out to different constituencies. This experience will be valuable for the work of the U.S. Executive Director, which requires close collaboration across the U.S. government and the highest level of integrity, transparency, and accountability to the U.S. taxpayers. I will also use these experiences to work with other shareholders in advancing our common objective to see well-designed development projects that respond to the most pressing needs in countries. As a first-generation American and daughter of Colombian immigrants, I am so fortunate to have lived the American dream after having seen poverty and political instability up close. I have the deepest appreciation for the importance of upholding and sustaining democratic institutions, respecting the rule of law and human rights, and a strong commitment to help those less fortunate than me. If confirmed, I would commit to work tirelessly to achieve President Biden's goal of advancing U.S. values and interests by strengthening institutional capacity, investing in inclusive growth, encouraging fair and rules-based trade, and reducing poverty around the world. Mr. Chairman, thank you again for the opportunity to come before you today. I would be happy to answer any questions from the committee. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Kugler. And we have now been joined by Senator Kane. And so we're going to invite uh, Senator Kane to do uh, uh, introductions uh, for uh, Mr. Mark Stanley and Mr. Rashad Hussein. Well, uh, thank you, Senator Merkley, Senator Haggerty, and all of my colleagues. It's a treat to sign on after a fairly contentious uh, help meeting. And I hope my friends Mark Stanley and uh, Rashad Hussain have 
already acquitted themselves well. I have no doubt that they have. Let me tell you about both of them. Mark Stanley is a longtime friend, uh, and Rashad Hussain is not uh, somebody that I know personally that well, but he's a very esteemed and qualified Virginian. They're both super qualified for the positions for which they are nominated. Let me start with Mark. I've known Mark for probably about 15 years. Um, as you've heard, he is a very experienced an attorney in Texas with a great track record of success uh, in the court, but he's also been a real uh, rock star when it comes to public service and philanthropy. He's a founding member of his law firm uh, and has done great work there, but his career actually began on Capitol Hill while he was a student at George Washington University and had the opportunity to work on the House Committee on Administration as an aide to Chairman Frank Thompson at that time. Um, he has committed himself to serving his community in a number of ways as a council member of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and also as chairman of the Texas Public Finance Committee. He is extremely well known for his devotion to his faith, Judaism, and public affairs done with, uh, with others um, in the Jewish community in Texas, around the country, and around the world. I first met Mark when I was chairman of the Democratic National Committee during the early years of the Obama administration, and we bonded because we're both trial lawyers, but also he's got a Richmond connection because his dad went to the University of Richmond. Um, at every level, a professional, philanthropic, and public service, Mark has demonstrated excellence, character, and integrity, and he would do a wonderful job representing our country as ambassador to Argentina. Rashad Hussain. Rashad hails from Falls Church, Virginia, right here in the area. And his, his nomination to be ambassador at large for international religious freedom is very important. I'll start by just noting, if you think he looks tired, uh, he's got a one month baby at home. So I'm sure that that might explain uh, some sleep deprivation recently, in addition to three other children. Rashad's got a deep background in foreign affairs uh, and also in particular law and religious freedom. He's currently Director of Partnerships and Global Engagement on the National Security Council. Our advocacy for religious freedom around the globe involves heavy interaction and uh, consensus building with stakeholder and civil society groups. So his NSC role now is uh, an important one. And prior to that, um, Rashad was Senior Counsel in the National Security Division of the Department of Justice. And then before that, he worked um, at the Justice Department serving as U.S. Special Envoy to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Uh, if confirmed, Rashad would be the first Muslim ambassador at large for international religious freedom. I know two of the previous ambassadors very well. We've had a, a diverse uh, representation of, of Americans from different religious traditions, but as the first Muslim ambassador, it would be a good thing to show our commitment to religious freedom ourselves, but also much of the persecution of religious minorities occurs in uh, Muslim-majority countries, and that gives Rashad, who's already demonstrated a sensitivity to this, an ability to uh, promote and build partnerships to embrace respect for all faiths. Um, he has been nominated or recommended by many organizations, including the American Jewish Committee, the Inter-Jewish Muslim Alliance, and the International Christian Concern. And the last thing I'll say about Rashad is, we would be very proud to have a Virginian in this position. The position was created by a lot of work done by uh, former uh, Virginia Congressman Frank Wolf. Um, and it was Virginia uh, in the 1780s that passed the Statute of Religious Freedom 
that served as the basis for the First Amendment's protection of all, that in this country you won't be preferred or punished based on how you worship or, or not worship. It is a Virginia value that's an American value. I'm proud to be here and represent a qualified Virginian for the position. Mr. Chair, thank you for letting me do my nominations out of order, and I'm looking forward to participating in the questions and answers with these with all these nominees. Thank you very much, Senator Kane. And it's now my privilege to provide the introduction for the Honorable Ramin Tuluhi. And he is a professor of the practice for international finance at Stanford University. He is a fellow at Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. His teaching and research focus on international economic policy, financial crises, and the economic impact of artificial intelligence. Prior to joining Stanford, he had a two-decade career spanning public service and investment management. He served in the Obama-Biden administration as Assistant Secretary for International Finance at the Department of Treasury. He previously was global co-head of the Emerging Markets Portfolio Management at the Pacific Investment Management Company, overseeing more than $100 billion in investments. He began his career as a civil servant at the Department of the Treasury. He earned his AB degree in economics from Harvard University and a master's philosophy degree in international relations from Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. Welcome, and we look forward to your testimony. Mr. Chairman, thank you for that introduction. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Haggerty, and distinguished members of the committee, I'm honored to be appear before you today as nominee to be Assistant Secretary for Economic and Business Affairs at the State Department. Thank you for considering my, my nomination, and I'd also like to thank the committee staff for meeting with me before this hearing to discuss critical economic and foreign policy issues facing the United States. Thank you to President Biden for nominating me for this position and to Secretary Blinken for his support for my candidacy. I'm thrilled that my mother, Alice, is sharing this day virtually with me from Iowa, uh, from Iowa City, where I was born and raised. My father, Ahmad, who passed away last year, is with us today in spirit. I'm profoundly grateful, grateful for all that their love has made possible in my life. Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, I welcome the opportunity, if confirmed, to return once again to public service. I started my career as a civil servant in the Treasury Department from 1999 to 2006, serving the International Affairs Division under Democratic and Republican presidents, President Clinton and President Bush. I worked on issues ranging from stabilizing economies in crisis from Southeastern Europe to Latin America, to building an international coalition to combat terrorist financing in the wake of 9-11. Seven years ago, I was honored to be confirmed by the Senate as Assistant Secretary for International Finance at the Treasury Department. In that position, I was proud to play an important role in facilitating U.S. and international monetary fund assistance to Ukraine to resist Russian aggression, supporting economic stabilization in key countries in the Middle East, and working to ensure that financial volatility in Europe and Asia did not disrupt the global and American economies. Outside of government, I've had the opportunity to expand my skills in ways that, contribute to that can contribute to more effective policymaking. During the past few years, I've been a professor of the practice of international finance at Stanford University, teaching the next generation of citizens and prospective policymakers about how to prevent and respond to financial crises, drawing on my experiences both in government and in the private sector. At Stanford, I also designed and taught one of the first university courses in the world on the economic impact of artificial intelligence. 
preparing graduates to grapple with the profound ways in which technology is poised to affect jobs, wages, industrial organization, and global competition. I hope to bring these insights on what it takes for Americans to thrive in this new technological era to the work of the State Department and the U.S. government. If confirmed, I look forward to applying these skills and experiences across the broad range of issues in which the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs at the State Department has an important role to play, with a particular focus on three key challenges. First, we must secure a strong recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. This means working with the interagency and other countries to restore safe and sustainable international travel and commerce. It means addressing short-term supply disruptions and taking concrete actions to build more resilient supply chains for the future, especially in key areas like semiconductors and other critical sectors. And it means using commercial diplomacy in new ways to unlock novel opportunities in the post-pandemic world for U.S. businesses, particularly small and medium-sized enterprises. Second, the United States must lead in shaping the norms and rules governing trade, commerce, and technology that will underpin the future global economy. This means working with like-minded nations to confront abusive policies by China that create unfair competition, disadvantage American workers, and conflict with American values. It means shaping global technology adoption and governance in ways that promote openness, security, and reliability, and reflect democratic rather than authoritarian principles in areas ranging from 5G to artificial intelligence to the digital economy. And it means cooperating with allies in areas like national security investment reviews and export controls to achieve shared objectives. The United, third, the United States must leverage economic tools to advance foreign policy objectives and respond to crises. Among other things, this means utilizing sanctions effectively in pursuit of US economic, uh, pardon me, diplomatic and national security goals. It also means deploying U.S. foreign assistance, including the expanded capacities of U.S. Development Finance Corporation to support sustainable economic development, achieve key climate goals, and advance strategic U.S. interests. And it means deploying these tools in collaboration with allies, partners, and multilateral institutions to bolster their effectiveness. Thank you again for this opportunity to appear before you today and for considering this nomination. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much. I appreciate the testimony. We've now had testimony from all five of our nominees. And before I turn to the period for questions, we have a set of questions that are standard for this committee to, to ask. I'll ask you to all respond together. Uh, if, you, if your answer is a yes, you can answer yes. Uh, and then I'll, I'll pause if anyone wants to answer no, then we'll be able to, to, to hear you. And so uh, do you, agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited yes yes, yes i do and does anyone wish to answer no to that question all right hearing none uh second do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview yes yes yes, yes i do Hearing no no's, do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. Yes. Thank you. And do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. Yes. Thank you all very much. As, as you undoubtedly understand, it's uh, very important to the uh, 
checks and balances of our government to be able to get information and insight from our key uh, representatives of the executive uh, branch and the various roles that you will be, be in. I will now turn to the period of uh, questions. I encourage you to keep your responses as brief as you can uh, so that uh, you can have the joy of responding to more inquiries and uh, not uh, proceed to uh, upset various senators by filibustering their, their questions. That's a privilege reserved only for the Senate floor. Uh, Mr. Stanley, let's, let's begin with Argentina. As you assess the drivers of Argentina's persistent economic challenges that include inflation and substantial public debt that exceeds their gross domestic product, certainly high poverty exacerbated by COVID-19, to what extent is the United States working multilaterally with IMF leadership as Argentina strives to negotiate a new debt restructuring plan? Thank you for the question. And you're right. Um, Argentina is a beautiful country. It's a, a beautiful tour bus that doesn't have the wheels on working right. Um, the IMF debt, uh, $45 billion is huge. The issue, though, is it's the Argentines leadership responsibility to come up with a macro plan to pay this back. And they have yet to do so. They say one is coming soon. The United States, uh, the Biden administration has met with them even last week. Uh, the embassy in Buenos Aires and the State Department are engaged uh, to try to find constructive ways to help. But in the end, it comes with, up to them to figure out a macroeconomic plan to, to put them back on track. And I just want to say COVID has certainly not helped the situation at all. The good news is they're back on their feet. But there is no more important issue than getting back on their feet because they are a great bilateral partner for us for trade and economics. And we need a partner that is economically healthy. Thank, thank you very much. Um, Mr. Hussein, the United States has utilized a variety of, of tools in response to human rights violations against ethnic and religious minorities in Xinjiang, China, including targeted sanctions, export controls, import restrictions. However, we continue to see enormous uh, oppression of the Muslim Uyghur community with very high-tech strategies to control and uh, such that uh, the impact has been that it's conducting genocide as uh, established and determined under both the Trump administration and the Biden administration. So what more should the United States be doing uh, in this regard? What more can we do uh, what has what we've been doing been been uh, effective? Do we stay the course? Are there new strategies to to implement? Thank you for the, the question, Senator, and thanks for your uh, leadership um, on this important issue. Um, I share your deep concerns about China. Uh, China is one of the worst abusers of religious freedom in the world. Um, I've visited uh, Xinjiang province and have seen firsthand um, China's blatant disregard for uh, the Uyghur community, their oppression, the genocide that's occurring there, and for their disregard of human rights toward a number of religious communities, um, including uh, the, the Tibetan Buddhists, the Pro uh, Protestants, Catholics, and the Falun Gong. Um, so we will um, do everything in our power to make sure that we articulate those concerns in our report, International Religious Freedom Report, that we speak directly uh, to the Chinese, 
about their policies and individual cases that we're concerned about as well, that we work closely with civil society uh, around the world, that we use some of the tools that, that you've mentioned, sanctions, visa restrictions, uh, export-import controls. And then one of the things that I want to uh, make sure that we do is we work closely uh, with um, some of the Islamic countries around the world uh, that could be more vocal uh, in speaking out about what's going on uh, with the Uyghur population specifically, as you mentioned. Um, some of those countries have expressed some concern, but I think um, if they are able to come together um, and apply more pressure to address this issue, then we have a more significant chance of making an impact and in, in, in helping the lives of people in China. Uh, thank you. My, my last question uh, for this, this round is to Ms. Wong. And given that the Asian Development Bank is in the process of reviewing its environmental and social safeguards policies, what would you plan to do as executive director of the Asian Development Bank to encourage the institution and other shareholders to set ambitious climate targets and to encourage the Asian Development Bank to prioritize uh, clean energy solutions? I believe you are still muted, but I'm sure you're giving a great answer. <laughs> Thank you, Senator, for, for that question. Uh, as you rightly point out, the Asian Development Bank is going through its uh, safeguards policy review. Uh, it hasn't done it in 10 years, so it is a really great opportunity for us to uh, look at uh, safeguards to not make sure that we don't walk back from any of the social and environmental safeguards, but that we move forward, uh, particularly around climate change. Uh, I believe that uh, uh, we need to be using the Asian Development Bank as a tool to help countries move to a clean growth path uh, uh, going forward. And so uh, my effort will be to ensure that uh, both environmental safeguards uh, and the climate change area to, to look at uh, sources of uh, uh, fuel uh, to to uh, uh, ensure that uh, we are going forward with a clean clean um, energy path. Great, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, my time is up. We're going to turn to Senator Haggerty and and Senator Haggerty. I'm handing over uh, the uh, the gavel, which. I can't hand it to you physically. It's it's a <laughs> cup. You can use whatever you'd like on your desk. Uh, and um, since your questions are up next, I'll, I will try to be back uh, by the end of your questions. If not, we will proceed to Senator Menendez upon the completion of, of the answers to your questions. Uh, thank you. Honored to take over, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And um, first, I'd like to just uh, turn to Mr. Tului. Uh, to congratulate you on your nomination to uh, highlight the fact that in my previous job, I worked very closely with your predecessor. It's an extremely strategic role that you will play if you're confirmed. And I just want you to know that my staff and I look forward to working with you if you're confirmed to make certain that you're successful because we perceive, and I'm sure all the members of this committee share the same view, that you're in a position to make an extraordinary difference. Uh, next, I'd like to turn to Mr. Hussain. First, I, I want to applaud you and your family and congratulate you for the addition uh, of your newest family member. Uh, I know what that's like, uh, but to you, your wife and your three older children, congratulations on the new addition. I do hope you get a little more sleep uh, between now and, and, and the time you're confirmed, should you be. 
Um, I also want to applaud uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for doing the right thing and making the determination that the Chinese Communist Party is indeed engaged in a genocide and crimes against humanity with respects to Uyghurs and the Turkic Muslim population in China. And I also want to applaud Secretary of State Blinken for seeing that travesty and upholding uh, that determination. The Chinese Communist Party persecutes Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims because the teachings of Islam may undermine the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. The United States should always remain a beacon of hope for those that espouse the freedom of religion. Mr. Hussein, I'm concerned that the Biden administration may overlook the ongoing genocide in China in order to strike some sort of naive grand bargain on climate. If confirmed as ambassador at large for international religious freedom, one of your responsibilities will be to help the Uyghurs and the Turkey Muslims in China. Mr. Hussein, if you're confirmed, do you agree that the United States should never use the religious freedom and human rights of religious minorities in China as a bargaining chip in climate negotiations with the Chinese Communist Party? Well, thank you so much, Senator. <clears throat> yes, I do agree. Um, we've made it very clear um, from the first days in office, Secretary Blinken, as you noted, maintained the, uh, the designation of the treatment and the oppression of the Uyghurs as a genocide. And as I described, uh, in the number of tools uh, that we intend to use um, in dealing with this issue, we will not relent in our efforts to help those that are suffering in China, including the Uyghurs and including other communities there, as I mentioned, the, the Tibetan Buddhists, the Protestants, the Catholics, and the Falun Gong and others. I'm pleased to hear that. Um, Dr. Kugler, I'm gonna turn my next question to you. Um, as I told Deputy Secretary Treasury Adeyemo last week, I remain concerned about China's activities and their growing influence at the World Bank. Since its inception in 2003, the quote, doing business report has ranked 190 countries according to indicators to see how easy it is to establish and grow private companies. Despite the ongoing crackdown on private businesses by the Chinese Communist Party, China's ranking somehow rose seven places in the last rankings. China ranked 31st in the 2020 report, which was ahead of Switzerland by five places. As a lifelong businessman with significant experience in private investment, it, this makes no sense to me. However, it makes perfect sense when we see that Chinese malign behavior has been involved in setting these rankings. According to the Wall Street Journal, an independent investigation by an outside law firm concluded that former World Bank CEO Kristalina Georgieva and other leaders pressured staff to improve China's Doing Business 2018 rankings. The United States must do everything it can to protect the integrity of international institutions. So my question for you is that if confirmed, how will you ensure that China's not able to compromise the World Bank's values and actions? Senator Haggerty, first let me say that I deeply share your concerns about China's abusive behaviors, which not only undermine our US values, but they also try to undermine our rules-based global leadership system. Um, as someone who has used data for more than two decades, um, I, I deeply believe that any data, any reports that come out of the World Bank need to be held to the highest standards of rigor, integrity, and transparency. And I would commit to do that. Um, I, 
I would work certainly with our allies, with like-minded shareholders at the bank and with the management at the bank to make sure that this sort of manipulation of data does not occur into the future. I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. And I take, take very seriously your commitment to push back against this type of malign behavior to influence these types of rankings. Now it's my honor to turn over the questions to Chairman Menendez. Chairman? If Chairman Mendez is not available, I'd like to then turn it over to Senator Cardin, please. Well, thank you, Senator Haggerty. Uh, uh, and I appreciate very much this opportunity. First, let me express my thanks to all of our nominees and their families for their willingness to serve our country during these extremely challenging times. Um, it's difficult, and we appreciate the sacrifices that you're making. Uh, I want to talk about uh, President Biden's commitment that our foreign policy is going to be based in our values, uh, our concerns about the growth of corruption, uh, the autocratic regimes around the world, and that all of our tools of foreign diplomacy uh, need to be focused at advancing uh, our values, which is anti-corruption, democracy, etc. So if I might start with Ms. Wong uh, in regards to the Asian Development Bank, in its activities in Miramar. Uh, Miramar's made a sharp turn in the wrong direction with the military, again, uh, having total control over the country. Explain to me how we can leverage our involvement uh, through the bank in Miramar to advance our uh, goals of a more democratic society for the people of Burma. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator. I totally agree with you. Uh, uh, that that uh, their situation in, in Burma is uh, dire. Uh, I actually was there uh, in 2019. I spent quite a bit of time uh, going around to villages and meeting local people. It is one of the poorest uh, countries in that region. Uh, and what has happened to it is uh, very uh, difficult to, to imagine um, currently. I am uh, actually uh, not confirmed uh, at the moment, and it's not appropriate for me to take any particular role uh, or position in the uh, in terms of the uh, how to designate what happened in in Burma. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to getting briefed uh, on that uh, if confirmed. Uh, having said all that, uh, I will definitely commit to you to we will be evaluating uh, each project. Uh, I will be relying on the Treasury team. Uh, as well to going forward uh, on on uh, looking at that uh, and ensuring uh, totally agree that ensuring that democracy and human rights are are forefront in in those uh, values that we we will uphold uh, in in that in that particular country. Thank well, you. thank you for that reply. Uh, as you know, at one time we had some of the toughest uh, sanctions against uh, Burma of any country in the world. We relaxed that as we were moving forward on a democratic path within that country. Uh, then we only, including the president of the United States making a visit, uh, uh, yeah. that didn't seem to change the direction of the military. So I think it's very important that we have a very strong position that uh, a carrot stick approach, we're not gonna give them benefits if they're not gonna advance uh, the goals that are important. And I look forward to working with you in, in that regard. Uh, you, Mr. Stanley. 
Uh, thank you for your willingness to take on uh, Argentina. I, I know your abilities and your skills, and I, I thank you for uh, being willing to take on this challenge. I know you'll do a great job. And uh, I, I want to talk about one of the issues you raised, that is the uh, human rights record in Argentina. When you look at its border areas, there's a lot of money laundering that takes place between Argentina and Paraguay and other countries in that region. Uh, we, we need to strengthen our capacity to fight corruption in, in our countries that have significant challenges. Tell me just a little bit about your strategy uh, on uh, making sure that anti-corruption is a priority in our mission in Argentina. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Um, I'm glad you're focusing on this. Um, Se Secretary Blinken, I don't know if you saw last week, gave a tremendous speech in Ecuador talking about how we're going to grow democracies in the Western Hemisphere. And the first issue he wanted to talk about was actually corruption, which he said is estimated to cost up to 5% of global GDP, how it stifles investment, deepens inequities, et cetera. It is clear that corruption takes place in this tri-border area that you're talking about between Paraguay, uh, Brazil, and Argentina. And the United States is fully engaged in trying to fight that there. There's tremendous cooperation with our defense uh, agencies, with our intelligence agencies. Um, we're doing a lot of exchanges. We're doing a lot of training. We're delivering a lot of anti-crime fighting uh, equipment even. And so I'm really proud of what's going on, but I think you're highlighting a very, very important issue. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Now it's my um, honor to turn this over uh, to Senator Shaheed. Thank you, uh, Senator Haggerty, and um, congratulations to all of the nominees today. Thank you for your willingness to continue to serve this country. I'd like to start with you, Mr. Stanley, with a more parochial issue. And that is, has to do with an insurance company in New Hampshire, which um, was doing work in Argentina. They were shorted um, significant funding. They have been to court um, and have had the court rule in their favor. And I'm hopeful that as ambassador, you will push the Argentine government to pay off on the debt that they owe to this insurance company. It's TIG, and I have asked this question of previous secretaries of state and previous ambassadors to Argentina. So far, no one has been successful, but I'm counting on you and your good legal negotiating skills. Will you commit to working to do this? Yes, uh, Senator Shaheen, thank you so much. Uh, there's nothing more important in our job than to represent American and Amer Americans and American corporations that are trying to do business. And absolutely, I will investigate and see what I can do. I'm surprised uh, Judge Prado didn't make much success, ha have a success in that because he's a terrific uh, lawyer and judge uh, who was uh, the last ambassador. But I will, if confirmed, when I first get on the ground, I will look at this immediately and I'll report back to you. Um, thank you. Well, we stand ready in our office to provide any information that you need. You. Um, my next question is for both uh, Ms. Wong and Dr. Kugler. As I'm sure you're aware, the, in 2019, the Congress passed the Women's Entrepreneurship and Economic Empowerment Act, which makes it part of our international development policy to try and 
address the factors that hinder women's economic empowerment. Can each of you talk about how you will work on that issue um, if confirmed at your um, appointments? Dr. Kugler, you wanna begin first? Absolutely. Thank you, Senator Shaheen, for this very important question. Um, I, I do so much agree with you that gender disparities remain a big challenge around the world, and they have only become worse during the pandemic and the recent global crisis. So it is very important that we continue to tackle issues of gender disparities, whether it's with regards to health, with regards to access to education, with regards to access to employment, and importantly, access to finance, which uh, hinders the, the progress of women entrepreneurs. So I thank you for your support of that bill. I, I know the World Bank recently has introduced a new initiative called the WeFi Initiative, which is called Women Entrepreneurs Financial Initiative, introduced in 2017. Uh, they have disbursed some $300 million in about 60 countries. Uh, but I do believe there is a lot of progress that is still needs to be done. I myself have for over two decades um, devoted a good amount of, of my research efforts to looking to gender disparities in education and in employment. So I'm deeply committed to this issue. I would certainly be committed to working forward in terms of reducing gender disparities, working at the board to push uh, for projects that support women entrepreneurs and to make sure that, that we don't forget that this pandemic has hit women the worst around the world. So thank, thank you, you very, very much. Ms. Wong. Uh, thank you, Senator Shaheen, for your leadership on this, on this issue. Um, I, when I was at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, we actually did a, a huge effort in any project, any assistance that we do, we focus on women in the, in the economy. And I would like to understand a little bit better uh, as we, as I, if confirmed, uh, going into uh, the Asian Development Bank, if we could do simple, something similar, uh, because uh, as uh, Dr. Kugler has mentioned, uh, it affects the development, poverty, all of that affects women uh, significantly more so because they are the backbones of the economy. And so understanding and any of the projects that we go into, understanding uh, women and the economy and, and particularly in specific projects uh, would be definitely my focus uh, going forward. Thank you very much. Thank you both very much. I hope you'll commit to working with the State Department's Office of Global Women's Issues. And I, I have a final question for you, um, Mr. Tulani. As we talk about the challenges of American business and think about the intersection of that with what happens overseas, one of the things that has been absolutely critical to New Hampshire's economy, and I think also to many other um, states throughout the U.S., has been the visa workers who come, um, both the students, the J-1 visa students who come in and, and work in the summertime, um, also the H, H-2Bs, which New Hampshire is a state with um, agriculture and a hospitality industry has relied on them. and. The fact that we have had a limit on the number of people who can come into the US, um, not just this year, but over the past 
um, four years of the previous administration, has really had a huge impact. And as we're looking at the workforce challenges that we have in this country right now, um, we need to figure out how we can get in those workers who have histories in the US with our business employers and make sure that we can continue to provide that source of help for our businesses. Those folks don't wanna stay here. They wanna go back to their home countries. Those jobs aren't jobs that um, union workers generally want. They don't have the kind of benefits and long-term um, support that most um, union workers need. So why can't we get more of those workers into the United States and what can you do if you confirm to make sure that we increase those numbers in a way that's important to American businesses. Senator Shaheen, thank you very much for raising this issue. Um, I can commit to you that if confirmed, I'd like to work with you and your staff as well as other others on this committee um, on this issue to find ways forward um, to address all of the issues that you enumerated. Well, thank, thank you. you very much. I will hold you to that. Thank yeah. you, Mr. Chairman. Thank, thank you, you much, Senator Shaheen. And I think we are, uh, and thank you, Senator Haggerty. I'm, I'm back. I'll, I'll take the, uh, uh, the gavel back. And I believe, Senator, I, we do not have another Republican senator with us, is my understanding. So that would mean Senator Kane is up next. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair, and to these witnesses. Very, very yeah. great. Let me ask a question of Mr. Stanley. Um, uh, Mr. Stanley, congratulations first. And then um, an issue that has been a longstanding bipartisan issue in Congress is trying to do everything we can as United States to work with Argentina so that it can hold accountable those who bombed a Jewish community center in Buenos Aires in 1994, I believe. Um, we, we've had, you know, we kept pressure on in a bipartisan way, but the governments of Argentina have kind of been vacillating as to how vigorously they will pursue accountability for this terrorist attack. Should you be confirmed, I know this is an issue you know well and are deeply concerned about what would be your intent as ambassador to Argentina to, to keep pressure on for appropriate accountability uh, for those who, uh, Lebanese and Iranians who participated in this terrorist attack. Uh, thank you, Senator Kane, and also thank you again for your introduction. That was really kind of you. Um, this is a, a huge issue, and, and this is not a Jewish issue. This is an affront on Argentina. In 1994, a terrorist organization came onto Argentine soil and blew up the Jewish center. They'd previously blown up, uh, attacked the Israeli embassy. Eighty-five people died, and uh, they weren't all Jews. Many were wounded. Um, there's never been, they never gotten to the bottom line. No one's been called, like you said, to account for it. Um, this is the rule of law and this is justice. And we do call on the Argentines to continue to focus on this. I am pleased uh, that the Argentine government in 2019 uh, did declare Hezbollah a terrorist organization finally. I am uh, pleased that President Fernandez uh, recently was outraged by the appointment of one of the co-conspirators, allegedly, uh, to leadership in the Iranian regime. Um, but this was allegedly the Iranians funding Hezbollah and causing this kind of terror in South America. And I think all Argentines should be upset about it. And I think there should be a demand that this government and judiciary prosecute and find out who's responsible and get justice. So thank you so much.
You bet, uh, Mr. Stanley. I have great confidence that you will push as much as we can on this issue, and I appreciate so much your uh, your passion about it, Mr. Hussein. Uh, one of the things that really interests me about your background that strikes me as such good preparation for the position for which you were nominated was your work during the Obama administration on the Marrakesh Declaration, which I believe was in 2015 and 2016. Uh, this was an effort by um, politicians and scholars from countries uh, in the Muslim world and elsewhere um, to join together in a declaration uh, pushing Muslim-majority uh, countries to treat fairly and equally religious minorities within their countries. Please tell the committee a bit about your role uh, in the Marrakesh Declaration on the American side, your work on it, and I would like, Mr. Chair, to introduce that declaration um, as a, um, uh, into the record of this hearing. Well, thank you so much, Senator, and thank you uh, uh, for introducing me. Uh, when I began traveling uh, around the Muslim world to work on a range of foreign policy issues and to build partnerships in the areas of education, entrepreneurship, health, science, and technologies, one of the things that um, became clear to me is that not all of these countries uh, were protecting uh, religious minorities. And uh, I, I found it uh, uh, very disappointing and uh, for me it was a moral obligation uh, to do as an American, as a Muslim everything that I could to make sure uh, that uh, Islam was not being used to justify uh, this, the mistreatment of, of minorities. Um, we, we worked in a number of countries. We worked in Egypt with the Coptic community. We took an interfaith delegation with a Coptic leader from the United States, a prominent Imam. Uh, we worked in Tunisia and Morocco and Mauritania, uh, Nigeria, UAE, a number of countries. We brought scholars together using our convening role uh, to work on uh, a set of protocols for the protection of uh, religious minorities in Muslim-majority countries. We worked very closely with civil society. We worked with some of the leading uh, Christian, Jewish, Muslim leaders in the United States, prominent uh, leaders in the international religious field, giants like Tom Farr, uh, Chris Seipel, uh, Bob Roberts, Ambassador Saperstein, leaders in the Muslim community. And it ended in the culmination of a uh, declaration on the protection of religious uh, minorities um, denounced the treatment of the Christians and, and the Yazidis uh, by ISIS, uh, and, and in addition to a number of other examples, uh, set forward uh, a set of protocols and standards from within the Islamic tradition, in addition to what we push as uh, United States representatives, our values, our constitutional values, um, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, but we, we also thought it was, would be effective. And in fact, one of the countries, Tunisia, uh, there was a member of the parliament that adopted some of that language into the constitution that was being drafted at the time. So we're starting to see some tangible impact from it, but we really want to move forward on it and um, come together for a full implementation plan to continue this work. Well, I think that work will be such good preparation for the position for which you've been nominated. I'm proud to support you. And Mr. Chair, I'm going to hand it back and race to the floor to vote. Thank you very much, Senator King. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, um, uh, Mr. Chairman, and uh, congratulations again to all the all the nominees. Um, uh, Dr. Kugler, um, uh, Senator Haggerty uh, sort of raised one of the questions I had regarding uh, transparency at the World Bank, especially in light of the recent report on on doing business, uh, where uh, there was evidence that there were efforts to sort of cook the books um, with respect to China. Um, Another question for you, which is that we've seen during this COVID-19 pandemic, um, the gap 
uh, between the world's haves and haves not uh, grow even wider uh, in terms of uh, the great divergence uh, between developed countries and undeveloped countries. Uh, and obviously, it, it, it's not only the right thing to do, but it also serves the interests of the rest of the world if um, currently underdeveloped world is doing better, both in terms of our own exports and jobs. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, Dr. Kugler, about what, what you and the World Bank can do to address uh, that growing divergence? Thank you very much, Senator Van Hollen, for raising this important issue. Uh, as you know, the, the World Bank has committed some uh, $100 billion uh, over the course of the pandemic and has dispersed about 60% of that amount. Um, it has devoted most of these resources to low-income and low-middle-income countries. So that, that's good news in the sense that the World Bank is dispersing to those who are the neediest. Um, much of this money has gone to strengthen health uh, structures and health systems to support small businesses, but also to provide basic income support and food security to many who have fallen into poverty. About 150 million people have fallen into extreme poverty since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so having said that there is some good progress, some of these monies have been dispersed, but some of it has been dispersed slowly. So one first issue is to make sure that, that these funds, the rest of these funds and future funds are dispersed more effectively. And again, continue to go to low income and low middle income countries, which are the ones that need it the most. Um, there are a few tools that can be used to do that. Uh, but as was pointed out before, this has to be done with the right safeguards as well and with the right measures towards accountability because uh, we know that corruption has also risen with, within this period of the pandemic and the global crisis. Um, just like here in the U.S., one of the things that is holding countries back is not being able to address the pandemic. So. A key uh, comparative advantage that the World Bank is in terms of its expertise on health. The World Bank could be doing more and engaging more in terms of uh, helping the World Health Organization through its COVAX facility and others to facilitate the distribution of vaccines. Uh, so that, that is key. I think once we address the issue of the pandemic, we can move on also to address the issue of the economic recovery, which is important, obviously, for these countries. It's important to reverse the rapid increase that there has been in terms of poverty, but it's important for the U.S. because 95% of consumers live outside of U.S. borders. So if we hope for our economy to also fully recover, we need the rest of the world to, to come back again in the same way. Well, I thank you, and I, I appreciate uh, your, your, your answer, including underscoring that, that last uh, point. Um, Mr. Hussein, um, as you know, the ambassador at large for international religious freedom um, is an ex officio member of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Uh, they have uh, consistently recommended that more countries uh, be designated as, quote, countries of particular concern when it comes to um, the lack of full religious uh, liberty. Um, 
and yet they those countries have not been so designated um, by the executive branch. Can you just talk a little bit about that discrepancy? And uh, obviously, the United States and Secretary of State and others um, look at a range of issues, but your job will be to underscore the importance of religious liberty. And how should that factor in to the U.S. State Department's overall designations? Thank you so much, Senator. Um, if confirmed, I look forward to working uh, closely with the commission. Uh, they provide excellent research, uh, excellent resources uh, to advise the International Religious Freedom Office and Secretary of State and the administration. Uh, we will look at all of the data that they provide uh, and combine it with our research and our assessments and we'll advocate vigorously uh, within the Department of State to, to use every tool at our disposal, including um, when appropriate uh, designations as co of countries, countries of particular concern uh, in making those recommendations as part of the, the, the policy process within the State Department. Um, and there may be times when uh, we, that there, that there is uh, a uh, process um, by which uh, different components within the State Department are able to make recommendations on those, but our job in, in the Office of International Religious Freedom is to make sure that all of the data uh, is put forward on the religious freedom, the state of religious uh, freedom in a particular country and to make the most vigorous case possible for using uh, the most appropriate tools, including uh, that designation. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you very much, Senator Van Hollen. And uh, I do not believe that Senator Menendez is with us, but let me just pause for a moment uh, if he is. If any other senator is, is uh, uh, standing by in the electronic space. We don't do not see anyone. And Senator Haggerty, did you have any uh, closing comments or closing question you wanted to ask? Uh, no, I would just like to thank you for conducting a great hearing today, Mr. Chairman. Uh, it's been my honor to serve alongside you as ranking member. Yeah, well, thank you very much for taking the gavel and for being being here to uh, pursue this important process of the Senate exploring the confirmation of the nominees. I'll close with one last question for Dr. Kugler. We've had the International Panel for Climate uh, lay out a, a code red report uh, saying we're in deep, deep trouble in terms of uh, uh, planetary warming. And yet uh, we've also had reports within the last week of extensive plans to massively expand the use of coal and of natural gas over this coming decade. Is it time for us to take a firm stand at the international banks and all of all sorts, not just the International Bank for Reconstruction Development, uh, to, uh, to end the financing of fossil fuel projects, or at least to use our weight towards that objective? Thank you very much, Senator for that important question. Um, as President Biden has indicated, this is uh, a key issue for this administration. It is the biggest existential threat of our time. And, and I do believe that we need domestic action to go hand in hand with global leadership on climate change. So, um, there have been two good developments at the World Bank, the first one, is that uh, commitments for climate change and climate financing have increased substantially over the past few years. In fact, 
the new commitment is of 35% by 2025. Um, I think that's a very important step that has been taken in that direction. The second thing is that, that uh, there has been an increased uh, effort to pay attention to how projects are funded and whether uh, to support uh, projects that, that produce, that support fossil fuels. So as, as I understand at this point, uh, there has been an effort to make sure that we help countries transition and make those transition from fossil fuels to, to more, to cleaner forms of energy. Um, and, and I do think that it is important to consider each of these projects on their own merits. It is important to look at it in the context of country strategies, um, but we do need to make sure that the rest of the world, just like the US, makes progress in this direction because we cannot do it alone. This is something that we know China contributes 30% of greenhouse emissions, many other countries make big contributions as well. So domestic action alone is not gonna do it. We need to certainly move countries uh, through the projects that are funded in the World Bank to transition to sustainable development and to a green recovery as well. Uh, thank you, uh, doctor. And I'll just note that uh, the administration put out guidance uh, in August, I believe it was, uh, that said in our international financial institutions, they would oppose new coal projects, new oil projects, or the financing of those, but listed a series of exceptions for natural gas. I just want to make sure people understand that natural gas is methane, that methane is far more damaging to the climate ounce for ounce, pound for pound, uh, than uh, uh, is coal, uh, and it traps, it traps more heat and that uh, sustaining natural gas systems that leak enormous amounts of methane into the air uh, is not compatible uh, with an effort to globally attack a code red situation. So I'm just giving you my personal view. I'm sure other members of the Senate would, would have a different, different view. I think it's a really important conversation because uh, the impacts we're seeing in my home state in terms of fire, ocean acidification, warming streams, diminishing snowpacks are all having calamitous uh, impacts and other states are experiencing this in different ways, but it is an issue on which the planet cannot succeed without U.S. leadership. And um, so I, I'm hoping that every time decisions come up, one will remember we are in a code red uh, situation and need to uh, uh, pivot, pivot quickly. I was, uh, I put uh, solar panels on, on the roof of my house here in DC, which is a small roof. And I was very surprised when I got the first monthly report for September that the average amount of energy trapped was 30 kilowatt hours per day, which means I could drive 120 miles in an electric car on just the sunlight on my roof every single day for the month of September. We have phenomenal, uh, we have phenomenal technology at our disposal on wind and, and solar and many other uh, possibilities but we have to implement these technologies uh, uh, quickly. So on that note, I'll end. And now that I've put that forward, uh, Senator Haggerty, would you like to have any final comment? Well, um, again, there, as you say, there'll be differing opinions here. Uh, having spent a good part of my life focused on the developing part of the world and having just left Asia to come to do this job. 
uh, I want to see these nations make thorough progress, but I want to note the fact that China obliterates uh, all the progress that developing nations make with their addition of coal-fired plants every year. So we need to take a global perspective on this, not punish our own economy and uh, take a unilateral disarmament approach, but let's look at this in a more holistic and, and, and uh, manner that, that takes into account America's interests first and uh, work with our allies to, to, to make progress in a way that makes sense. I do not want us to see uh, the utilization of you know our our financial system, uh, our regulations, and that sort of thing, as an end run to uh, address other issues. So thank you very much. Thank you, Senator, and thank you to our our uh, nominees, uh, Mr. Stanley and Mr. Hussein and and Ms. Wong and Dr. Kugler and the Honorable Ramin Tolui. Uh, we are delighted to have you bringing your expertise to a new chapter of uh, service. And uh, I will uh, note that uh, the record for this hearing will remain open until the close of business on Wednesday, October 27th. Questions for the record should be submitted no later than Wednesday. Well, that's just tomorrow, so not much time. I'm going to keep going to push to move forward. Uh, thank you all very much, and this hearing is adjourned.